imagine yourself lying there, aware, but paralyzed. Up to 70% of patients who experience awareness with paralysis go on to develop long-term psychological sequelae. This is really a wake-up call for ED and critical care physicians. What was that prevalence of awareness with paralysis? Clearly, this is an issue. Welcome back, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. So thankful that you are joining us for this podcast. Before we get started, let me bring in my co-host here on CCPEM, Dr. Peter W., Dr. John Greenwood, and Dr. Rob Rodriguez. Gentlemen, we had some hot-off-the-press discussion last month on TTM2 trial. Looking forward to the discussion for this month, but before diving into our education, Peter, how are things in New Orleans? Things are hot and wet in New Orleans with an uptick in COVID. So not as nice as I would like it to be just now. Uh-oh. Well, John, how are things in Philly? Well, very similar to sounds like New Orleans, but it's summertime and things are going pretty well in the city. We've had a few large, large gatherings, gatherings in the city and only seen a mild uptick in our COVID numbers, but definitely a little bit more than what I'd like as well. Yeah, here in Baltimore, I look at the numbers, we probably all look at our numbers every day. And today we hit about 76% of the state for adults age 18 and over having at least one of their COVID vaccination shots. So pretty good for the state. And we got as low in weeks past as about 0.5% testing positivity, and we had dipped under 100 hospitalizations across the entire state. Having said that, I would say probably over the last seven days, that testing percent has upticked a little bit. It's still less than 1%, but we're now at about 0.95%, and we're back over that 100 mark in terms of patients hospitalized. So we've also seen a slight uptick in our numbers in contrast to the last several podcasts where we've been all talking about declining numbers. To that end, Rob, how are things out on the West Coast in San Francisco? Yeah, we're about the same situation as you are there, Mike, as you are there in Baltimore. Our numbers remain low. There may be a slight signal, a slight uptick in cases coming through, but really nothing dramatic, really not having a sustained elevation. And we're dry and a little bit chilly out here at least this week. Well, leaning off that cool or chilly type of topic, as I mentioned, we talked about TTM2 last podcast, but just prior to that, we had talked about mechanical ventilation in the patient with ARDS, and we talked about its application and some key concepts in ventilating the critically ill ED patient along with ICU patient with ARDS. And we felt the topic we're going to focus on today was also very timely because once we intubate and then initiate mechanical ventilation, we also have to be very aware of post-intubation analgesia and sedation. And to that end, an article was just published actually this month in Annals of Emergency Medicine, the ED Awareness Study from some very prolific investigators, researchers out of St. Louis, Missouri, titled the ED Awareness Study, a prospective observational cohort study of awareness with paralysis in mechanically ventilated patients admitted from the emergency department. Very timely and a very important topic. So with that, Peter, set the stage set the foundation for why we need to discuss this, this podcast. 
Yeah, I think this is a very, very important article that's applicable to all of our practice, whether we're in the community setting or in the academic setting. And this ED awareness study will give us some good take-home messages. So awareness with recall paralysis is the recollection of sensory perceptions while under the influence of neuromuscular blocking agents. Studies in the operating room setting have really demonstrated that up to 70% of patients who experience awareness with paralysis go on to develop long-term psychological sequelae. So things like PTSD, depression, and major phobias. So prospective studies in the operating room under general anesthesia estimate the prevalence to be about 0.1 to 0.2%. So not hitting that many patients, but still, if it hits you, it's a big deal. The risk factors for awareness with paralysis in the operating room include IV anesthetics compared with inhaled anesthetics. So you're much more likely if you're getting the IV anesthetics. Underdosing of anesthesia, and that's going to be a theme that you'll see. The longer acting neuromuscular blocking agents, and so things you want to think about like that are rocuronium, and then the lack of protocolized or standardized sedation depth monitoring. So train of four or something along those lines that's standardized across the organization. So many emergency department patients who are intubated and initiated on mechanical ventilation may be at risk for awareness with paralysis. Patients receive IV and a lot go sedation, right? So we know that, that is often underdosed. This includes RSI meds. So if we were working in carnivals as emergency medicine providers, historically, we would underguess the weights. So we're underdosing our patients at a routine basis. So we need to be cognizant of that fact. And then many patients go on to receive no sedation at all after RSI. Others, there can be even significant delay in initiating post-intubation sedation. And it's often started at lower dosages to see how the patient responds hemodynamically to these agents. So the lack of a protocol-driven management of sedation is common in almost all of our emergency departments. So I think that that really sets the stage for us. Outstanding, Peter. And I think over the past decade of our podcast here, I simply just love the analogies that you throw out there. This is the first time though I've heard carnival guessing in terms of guessing the weight. That's a good one. I like that. So with that stage set, John, let me turn to you. Kind of take us through the study. What was really the objective in the study itself, this ED awareness trial? Yeah, Mike. So it's a good study because it really takes us on the opposite end of the spectrum here. As over the past few years, we've really pushed the low end of sedation, right? To try to lighten sedation as much as possible, to use lighter doses of sedatives in the critically ill patient during intubation. But this is the side effect or the consequence of using lighter sedation, right? So this group wisely thought of this question. They really wanted to estimate the prevalence of awareness in paralyzed patients receiving mechanical ventilation. So the study was a pretty straightforward study. It was a prospective cohort study that was at a single center academic residency affiliated tertiary care center in St. Louis, so Washington University. And they included patients who were 18 years or older who received intubation in the emergency department and had mechanical ventilation. 
And really the intubation could have been performed in the ED or pre-hospital or at a transferring emergency department who was then arriving to their institution. So they did have a good control of the patient population, but certainly there was opportunity for some patients to have awareness outside of their department. They excluded patients who died before discontinuation of mechanical ventilation because it'd be really difficult to ask them if they remembered anything. They excluded patients who had significant neurologic injury with residual deficits that precluded assessment with paralysis. And then also, if they transferred the patient out to another facility, they didn't follow or track those patients after they were extubated. So how did they measure awareness? Well, all the measurements and clinical data were gathered from a chart review. All variables were basically extracted from their electronic medical record. They included all the induction agents, including neuromuscular blocking agents to facilitate RSI. They included post-intubation analgosedation sedation medication. So basically what they chose to use, whether it was an opiate, a benzodiazepine, propofol, ketamine, automidate, even the atypical antipsychotics that may have been given probably peri-intubation in certain patients. So things like Haldol or quetiapine, and obviously the neuromuscular blockers that were used. And then lastly, they recorded sedation depth and they used the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale Score, so the RAS score, you know, we've commonly talked about that on the podcast. Basically, it was recorded by the nurse in the medical record of how deep or light the sedation was in the patient. So the primary outcomes of what they were looking for was awareness while the patient was paralyzed. And to aid in distinguishing awareness with paralysis from appropriate recall of the memories that the patient would have when they receive sedation with mechanical ventilation, the investigators used a combination of questions from a specific questionnaire called the Bryce questionnaire, as well as the ICU memory tool. So they used the objective, and I believe these are validated questionnaires to determine awareness in this patient population. So the Bryce questionnaire, which I just mentioned, was actually the preferred method for evaluating awareness. So they tried to use that as much as possible. The team assessed for awareness with paralysis after extubation and before the patient was discharged from the hospital. And awareness with paralysis was independently adjudicated by three expert reviewers. So it wasn't just a single person who was deciding this. They had a group of expert reviewers making the decisions to try and minimize any bias that might be present between the reviewers. And awareness with paralysis was determined basically when at least two experts were in agreement. They did have a secondary outcome, which was something called perceived threat. And that was identified as a mediator or a causal pathway to PTSD symptoms after extubation, maybe something that happened during the course of their ICU or their critical illness. And that was assessed using another validated measurement tool. So they were primarily looking at this concept of patients who remembered being awake while being paralyzed, but did look at a few other things. Standing, John. Thanks for taking us through the objective and the study. So something exceedingly important, essentially how many of our ED patients are aware or paralyzed following intubation, but very aware of their surroundings and what's going on with them. So Rob, let's turn to you and let's find out, well, how many patients actually, what was that prevalence of awareness with paralysis? Yeah, Mike. So they included 383 patients in this study. 
And of those 383 patients, 27 reported memories of wakeful paralysis and were therefore evaluated for the primary outcome using the Bryce questionnaire and or the ICU memory tool. And after adjudication, the prevalence of possible or definite awareness with paralysis was 2.6%, with 95% confidence intervals of 1.3 to 4.7%. And notably, exposure to rocuronium at any time in the ED, either as part of your RSI or part of their post-intubation medications, exposure to rocuronium was significantly higher between the patients who experienced awareness with paralysis versus the rest of the cohort. In other words, 70% versus 31%, and with an odds ratio of 5.1 and a 95% confidence interval surrounding that odds ratio of 1.3 to 20. So patients experiencing awareness with paralysis had a higher mean values also on their threat perception scale of 13.4 versus 8.5. And so again, they found the prevalence of possible or definite awareness with paralysis to be around 2.6% or about one in every 40 patients. The limitations on this study, overall, this was a relatively small sample size of 383 patients. It was a single center study so there are limitations with regards to that. There are, of course, limitations in terms of chart review, which may have affected parts of the study, but would not affect the prospective portions of the study in which they performed the Bryce questionnaires and the ICU memory tools. This, of course, was a subjective assessment of awareness with paralysis. And I don't know how much of a limitation that is because awareness is mostly a subjective phenomenon. An important limitation is that the authors excluded a large number of neurologically injured patients, large number of comatose patients. And so therefore, this could have inflated the true event rate of awareness. And a final limitation is that they assessed patients only at that time point before hospital discharge and they did not assess them later on, let's say at 30 days or even a couple of weeks after their paralysis. These are remarkable findings. And pardon the pun, but this is really a wake-up call for ED and critical care physicians. This is a big deal. I know I tried to do this study. I commend the authors on this study. It's a really important topic. I tried to do this exact same study, like 25 years ago, when I was first starting off as an attending, very hard study to do. So these findings are extremely important, and it's a wake-up call. I don't know about your institutions now, but we are almost exclusively using rocuronium in our RSIs and post-intubation. We've moved away from sucks, succinylcholine, for better or for worse, we've moved away from that. So if you're like our institutions, you really got to think about this problem. And I would suggest erring on the side of over-sedating patients when you're using rocuronium and sort of assuming that they may be at risk for awareness. Because again, this is a big deal. In fact, I remember, I believe there was like a 60 Minutes episode about this being, or some other 
news item about patients being aware and being paralyzed and awake and aware. So I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts, the thoughts of the rest of the group. What about you, Mike? So I completely agree with what you said, Rob. And it's something that we have touched on when we've hit topics in other podcasts dealing with post-intubation sedation and how truly important it is. But to have this study and put some numbers around it, you know, Peter, you let off, I think at the beginning, setting the foundation for at least what's available in the anesthesia world, in the OR world, in a controlled setting, it was about 0.1 or 0.2%. Here, it, you know, at least this initial study, putting it about tenfold higher, at least tenfold higher. And, you know, these patients are during their critical early hours of illness. We're doing a lot of things to them in the emergency department. And my gosh, how terrible. Imagine yourself lying there, aware, but paralyzed. I agree, Rob, we've almost exclusively moved to rocuronium as well. And so that the likelihood that we are doing lots of potentially painful procedures and delivering care to them while they're very aware. I think we've also learned a lot in the past few years about the long-term effects such as PTSD, depression, anxiety, those phobias of overall critical illness, and just how important this topic is and how we really truly do need to pay incredibly close attention. So I think you had some great statements and I agree with all of it. John, how about you? Yeah, guys. So it's worth thinking about this, or at least I've thought a lot about this in a couple of different ways that where awareness can actually happen, right? So if you don't time your induction agents properly, you can have awareness before the intubation, or if you don't time them correctly or start your post-intubation sedation in a timely fashion after intubation, like you said, Mike, there's a lot of painful procedures and things can happen. And we've all had a bad, and I can think of, there's been one or two times where, you know, the patients become more tachycardic and I've seen a tear come out of an eye. Like I know I have, and I'm just like, oh guys, can we just get some Versed or something while we're waiting? Cause there was a delay in propofol and you feel awful about it. Maybe just to review quickly. And I don't know how you guys time your meds during RSI. I know how I do it, but for the sedation drugs, Tomidate onsets pretty quick, so less than a minute. So I usually time it for about 30 seconds or so before pushing my paralytic. But the duration's only three to five minutes, so it doesn't last all that long. Whereas ketamine's onset's about a minute, but the duration's a lot longer, so 30 to 45 minutes at RSI dosing. But compare that to the paralytic. So I use a Tomidate all the time still. I haven't converted to full ketamine but I know a lot have, but rocuronium, the onset's pretty rapid, one to two minutes, but the duration is 30 to 60 minutes. So you have an hour's worth of paralysis, whereas your automate lasts for three to five minutes. So you got to really think about how you're going to cover that gap in between the time that you sedate them and that rocuronium's wearing off. But even succinylcholine, for those like, oh, well, I use succinylcholine, it wears off pretty quickly. Well, newsflash that the duration effect is still up to five to 10 minutes at times. And it might not be full paralysis, but even partial paralysis. So that automate that you gave might only be covering half the time they're paralyzed during that RSI period. So we definitely have to think about our post-intubation sedation plan and have that discussion with our team, whether it's after the tube's in, let's give them two milligrams of Versed and transition to propofol or have the propofol drip up and running so we don't get into trouble because clearly this is an issue. Well said, John. Great, great points. And Peter, kind of wrap things up for us. Give us your thoughts on this. I would just echo what John and Rob 
have said, I think our tendency is to underdose our sedative meds. And we've had podcasts before about how important it is to dose those meds and what our recommendations were, and then leading with fentanyl in many of those cases to address the pain that's associated with intubation and being on mechanical ventilation. So I think it's equally important to stress the utilization of fentanyl early and often with all of our intubations and then transitioning into sedatives. I like very much the idea of when we're ordering our RSI drugs, that we're simultaneously ordering our sedatives and making that very clear to everybody involved. Agreed. Well, gentlemen, this has been, as usual, a very insightful, important, informative, and educational discussion. I hope that all of you listeners also agree. Take a look at the ED awareness study. We will have a PDF handout with this podcast episode that you can review that kind of summarizes the primary and main details of the study itself. But really one of those big take-home points that we want to overemphasize here is that at least in this single center cohort of ED patients, there was a significant number or prevalence of patients who had awareness with paralysis. So your next shift, your next intubation, your next initiation of mechanical ventilation, be very aware of what we talked about over the course of the last 20 to 25 minutes. And really, as Peter just said, jump on and get that post-intubation analgesia and sedation going so that we are not leaving our patients with that awareness with paralysis and all of the potential negative and disastrous outcomes that can occur downstream coming out of this particular intubation and initiation mechanical ventilation. Now, for those of you that are new to the podcast, now that we are free open access, you can certainly write us any questions or comments you have directly on the website that goes to us. We love engaging in dialogue with all of our listeners, and we are so happy that you are joining us here on the podcast. And we will very much look forward to our next discussion in the next two weeks with you. Once again, this is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And on behalf of Peter, John, Rob, and myself, we will talk to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.